You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of The Murder of My Family is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find members you're related to through DNA. Not to mention, help catch the bad guys we talk about on the show. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the senseless and tragic death of a well-liked young father in Kansas who tried to break up a dispute at a party, but wound up dead in the process. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murdermyfam or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Raul Aguilar III was born on May 27, 1994 in Wichita, Kansas, to Raul Aguilar Jr. and Dorothy R. Aguilar. Raul grew up in a large, close family with siblings and lots of cousins, and he would always go out of his way to help his family in any way he could. When he was just 16 years old, Raul earned a high school diploma from Judge Riddle's Boys Ranch and then went on to earn a degree in general studies at Barton County Community College. He also earned a manufacturing certificate at the Learn Juvenile Correctional Facility. Eventually, he moved to Coleyville, Texas, where he started an LLC called the Blacklist Empire. Roll never wanted to work for anyone else again, 
He wanted to be his own man. His loved ones remember him as a free spirit, an old soul, and someone who would drop anything to help someone who was in need. And working for himself meant that he could be that free spirit and wouldn't have to answer to anyone if he had to drop something important just to help someone. He also had an adventurous side. He loved riding motorcycles. And Raul was a dedicated father of three. He had two sons, Lorenzo and Bo, and a daughter, Viviana. Raul's friends and family remember him as a selfless person with a genuine concern for others. He was active in his community, attending town hall meetings and speaking with local representatives. As busy as he was, he always found time for his mom, seeing her on most days and spending time together laughing, talking, and cooking together. On August 28, 2022, at around 2.30 in the morning, police were called to a house party in Derby, Kansas, just south of Wichita. A fight or an altercation of some kind broke out, and Raul, who was there at the party and had experience working security, tried to break the fight up. He wound up getting into a struggle with another partygoer, and without warning, gunshots were fired. Police responded to the scene, and when they arrived, they found a few partygoers at the house, and one of them was 28-year-old Raul Aguilar III. He had been shot and was in bad shape, and although he was rushed to the hospital in critical condition, he didn't survive his wounds and officially was declared dead at the hospital. Witnesses at the party described the suspect in the shooting as a slender black male in his 20s, and some people thought that his name might have been D. But police weren't sure because neither Raul nor the suspect lived at the home. And despite the suspect not being arrested, Deputy Police Chief Brandon Russell clarified to the public that there was no threat, and authorities encouraged tips from the public and began searching for this D. Just one day later, on August 29th, 22-year-old DeMarc Maurice Burgess turned himself in to the Derby police in connection with Rollo's death. He had already hired an attorney and would not sit for an interrogation by police. He did, however, give one statement, claiming that about five people at the house on Northwest View had gotten into a fight. Burgess claimed he didn't know why the fight started and wouldn't admit to drugs or alcohol being involved. When he was arrested, Burgess had bandages covering injuries on his neck and on his cheek, but said he wasn't sure when the injuries happened. And just to be clear, the bandages are like gauze and thick, not small band-aids, and they covered his entire neck and are clearly visible in his mugshot. Burgess was charged with second-degree murder and battery, and bond firm was set at $500,000. Though he turned himself in willingly, it seemed to be from the result of pressure from the publicity of the shooting that led him to turn himself in. Authorities thanked the public for their tips and cooperation in the investigation. If Burgess hadn't turned himself in, though, it probably wouldn't have been long before police were knocking on his door, because someone had recognized him and called in a tip. News of the arrest didn't do much to ease the pain of Raul's family and friends, who were devastated by his loss, and were left to pick up the pieces in the aftermath of the shooting. As of the recording of this episode, there hasn't been a trial date set for DeMarc Burgess, and Raul's family and friends are basically in a sort of limbo, unable to fully grieve because they don't know if their loved one will receive justice. Raul Aguilar's family stands firm in their belief that he was killed while trying to make peace, and that's just the kind of guy Raul was, helpful and devoted to fairness and justice. He would always take a stand for what he believed in, even if that meant he was the only one standing, he was always willing to advocate for those who needed a voice. 
Standing up and trying to help may have ultimately cost Raul his life. Why bad things happen to good people is something that we may never really understand. But I hope people like Raul never stop standing up for the things they believe in. The last six months without Raul have been tough on his family and friends, and they're hoping that he receives the justice he deserves. I sat down with Raul's mom, Dorothy, who goes by Dre, to discuss her son's tragic case and how his death has affected those that love and miss him. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. This episode of The Murder of My Family is sponsored by GEDmatch. We've all heard the wonderful news of how genetic genealogy, along with GEDmatch, is helping to solve some terrible, long, cold murder cases. To date, GEDmatch has helped see over 500 cases resolved. Some of those very cases we've covered on the show before they were solved, including the cases of April Marie Tinsley, Lindy Sue Beekler, and Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez, who died at the hands of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. And hopefully with GEDmatch, there will be a lot more cases solved. GEDmatch isn't just catching the bad guys, though. It's also relied on to help identify Jane and John Doe's and help exonerate innocent people who were incarcerated for the wrong reasons. And this is where you come in, and you can help. Because the more DNA profiles uploaded into the GEDmatch database, the more chances there are to help bring justice to so many people. But GEDmatch is so much more. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA. Even if you've tested using different companies, if you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload your DNA profile to GEDmatch, whether it's to help law enforcement provide justice for so many people that deserve it or just to find your family roots. Here's how it works. First, go to the company website where you've had your DNA testing done and download your DNA profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file for processing. Make sure to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crimes and missing persons cases. If you want to just focus on being helpful to finding identities of unidentified bodies, you can simply opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of your upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools allowing you to delve deeper into your results. You can compare your DNA profile to everyone else's on the site or to a specific person, plus much more. Some people have the misconception that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile, but that's not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. Law enforcement has the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, your email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile they've uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload, and they can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified remains given a name, not to mention dive into your family roots. Join GEDmatch today by going to GEDmatch.com slash M-I-M-F. Once again, that's GEDmatch.com slash M-I-M-F. Hi, Dre, and welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on to discuss your son Roll's case with us today. Thank you, Mr. Marker. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm I'm happy to have you here. And, you know, I know it's been a little bit less than six months since your son died tragically. He was taken away from you. This is all pretty fresh. How are you holding up through this whole ordeal, this whole uh, terrible experience? Well, not very well. Um, I'm just now 
just literally now in the last few weeks starting to um to get up and be able to kind of function again I know it sounds hard to believe but I literally just I was just non-functioning I I wasn't able to do anything you know as far as like pull records or I mean I just couldn't I was not capable of doing anything so it's definitely been it's been horrible yeah, I know everybody handles grief differently. I've talked to some people that, you know, from day one, they're they're doing they they they're constantly doing something, either trying to figure out what happened to their loved one, or they're they're just going to the extreme of constantly cleaning and and doing stuff because it sort of gets their mind away from the uh, dealing with it. And I, I think everyone's different. So whether it's you, you go into a shell sort of and and don't do a lot of stuff, or you're just constantly busy um so you don't think about it i think there's you know no wrong reaction but i'm I'm glad to hear you're you're finally up and around um yeah well it was it kind of it's been a lot it's been i mean it's been a roller coaster i I know i did have some i've had quite a few times that that i was kind of in the anger phase and Mm -hmm. that's when i would i would be angry of course um you know, lash out. Uh, it's been, and then also I would, um, I would hyper-focus like on articles and statutes and I mean, but no, I wasn't able to get up and do anything with it, but I would lay in bed and just read and read and read. And um, it, yeah, it was, it, it's been tough. So, I mean, it's been, I've had, I've been through so many, you know, the, the depression, the, uh, the anger, the, you know, I'm going to do this. And then, the, and then just trying to figure out if I even want to have the will, you know, you have to finally decide, do I, am I going to go on? Do I, you have to just make the decision whether you have the will to survive or not, because it has been that traumatic for me that I just thought I am suffering so much. Why is God doing this to me? Why, why is he keeping me alive? to make me suffer like this. And my suffering really isn't just the pain of losing my child, but it's, um, it's the way he died. It's like, it's like, I, I feel I'm, I'm suffering so much because all I can play in my head is what I've heard. And you just see your child suffering like that and dying and and wondering what's going, what's happening. I know you guys, I would never do this to you. What, what is happening? So that's, I think that's been the hardest part is just um my suffering is his suffering yeah and i you know as a parent myself i can't imagine that you know losing a child whether it was they were ill or in a car accident would be bad enough but to to know that someone intentionally took them from you um it's got to be another burden altogether yeah i mean especially you know it was it was unprovoked. He was just, he was, I mean, I think they, if I understand it right, they had only been at this place for about four or five minutes. Like literally he hadn't even talked to anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, he was just trying to pull his soon to be killer off of this other kid because he was just, he was attacking him and he, he clearly had lost his ability to defend himself. So I'm, I'm thinking Raul just, he did, I'm sure Raul did not realize that it was going to go this way. I'm certain that he was like, he probably thought, hey, he's going to get up. 
and he's just going to say, hey, all right, he's good. He's good. You know what I mean? And that the kid would respond to him, but that's not the way it, it turned out. So, I mean, and just, you know, all the things they did to him, um, you know, just, just shooting him and then like what they did to him after they shot him. And I mean, I just, it just, everything that could get the worst case scenario that, I mean, I couldn't even imagine all these things happening, but they happened to him. And so it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, before we go back to that day and, and sort of rehash that exactly what happened, can you help us get to know Roll a little bit? Tell us a little bit about him and what he was like. Oh yes. Now Raul, he was the oldest of um of four sons. I had him when I was pretty young. So he and I were just we were super close and he assumed that role the oldest son by himself. I mean he he always felt like he had to look out for me. He always and, and he did. He helped me and he helped me so much, truly, up until the day he died. And he's just, he's been there. I mean, every time I need something, will you help me move? Will you help me with this? And, you know, and I would have other things going on, like at work and things like that. And I'm like, hey, will you come help me set up? Um, hey, I want to have, you know, something for my nurses. You know, will you run and, pe- you know, pick up a bunch of sparkling wine? I mean, he did all this stuff for me all the time. And then after he died, I found out that he was doing all this stuff for other people too. I don't know how he ever had the time, but, um, he was just, I mean, he was, he was a great son to me and he was always, and he was, he was good to his cousins. I mean, just to everyone, he'd be the first one to to help you out. He's the guy that you could call at one, two, three in the morning. Not only would he pick up, he would show up he would go if you needed a ride or if you were out of gas. He was, I mean, he was him. He would be there for you. And, I mean, I can't even say I would do that myself. I probably wouldn't even answer the phone at 3 in the morning. Yeah. But he was, I mean, he was committed to his family. Family was a big deal. We we raised them to be close. And and um, I also raised them not to be a bully. And I, and I also raised all my boys to... Um, not let other people, you know, don't stand back and watch somebody else get bullied. And and now I, I wonder if I should have even taught him that. But he was, um, I mean, he had three kids. He was always, I mean, he, he's got a 12-year-old daughter, and she's a great, great child. And, I mean, he, and he has a three-year-old son, and he had him with him, like, every day. Like, this three-year-old had a full-time job with him because he took him everywhere he went. And his oldest daughter has um, other siblings too. And, you know, he always picked all the kids up, all three of them. It didn't matter. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was just that way. And um, he was, I mean, and aside from that, he also liked to ride his motorcycle. And that was a, that was a real big deal to him. He took a lot of pride in that. Um, he showed up for everybody's memorial, memorial rides, you know, for certain riders that um, had gotten killed on, on their motorcycles. He always showed up for them. He made, like, sweatshirts for um, everybody, that for all the riders in the winter, like, literally ironed on their last name on all of their hoodies. I mean, he just, he was just so committed to, to everybody else, and he always looked out for, for everyone else. And... 
I mean, he was, to me, he was just, he was just, a, he was a great kid, really, truly. I had a, a wonderful son. But, I mean, that's him as my child, you know, and, you know, as an employee, he was a CNC machine operator. He did private security. And, um, and I think that's why he kind of had the, uh, the idea. That's what, that's what they do. They break up fights. So I think that had something to do with why he was trying to break up that fight. But, um, and then he would do like some other things, you know, for self-employment. So he, he always stayed busy. He rode his motorcycle. He was with his kids. He was always helping me out. And I mean, he showed up for others. And he, um, another thing that to me was really important, which is ironic. It's ironic how he was killed because as much as he did for other people or as much as he'd be the first one to defend you, I can't believe that he died and all the onlookers just like left him there. Nobody called 911. But um, in about 2020, when the, uh, when the George Floyd um, situation was happening, I think that's when he finally looked into himself and realized um, what his values were because that was when he started to kind of um, – decide what was right and wrong and he went and he would advocate and he was a part of a lot of that i mean he didn't support like tearing up our community and things like that but he definitely started to um stand up for what he believed in even if he had to stand alone and he was super involved in, in all of that and um and then he also was you know trying to get involved in the community as far as you know influencing change as far as like the community and the police and their relationship, just to improve safety. And he's, he believes that that was important. So he started showing up for like the community events and, and that neighborhood cookouts and things like that. And I mean, he really, he really wanted to be different and, and I could see the man that he wanted to be. Sounds and like he, he, I was just gonna say, it sounds like he was really committed to, uh, you know, seeing what his potential was and seeing if he could affect some kind of change and, um, uh, and help he the community in some that. way. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. Uh, he, so it, it, he's, he's got all this stuff going on. He's working, he's going to these events. He's got young kids. He, it, it sounds like he had a really, <laughs> um, a filled schedule doing all this stuff. It sounds like he was a busy guy. Yes. I mean, I could believe because he was always there for me. And then I found out that he was like always there for everybody else. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he was, he, he truly was, I mean, he was just committed. He was just committed to others. And, and I was, I mean, I was just so proud of him. And I, you know, he didn't have such an easy life. Like I said, I had him when, when I was young. So we had our struggles. He would, um, you know, he would help me out. You know, when I was in nursing school, I couldn't even work. Him and his little brother were like working and giving me money and giving me lunch money and buying my uniforms for me and like really got me through nursing school. And um, his brother uh, passed away in 2021 by, by suicide. And so, I mean, I went through some stuff then too. And Raul was like always just like right there to take care of me, you know, right there to just, you know, you need to get up, mom, you need to get sun on your face, 
let's go. And he would pull me out of my bed. <laughs> he would like take me out. I mean, I didn't even want to go, but I mean, he just, he just did. He was just, he was so good to me. And I know I keep like focusing on who he was like as a son. And I think that's just because I'm still so hurt. But, um, but you know, he, there's way more to him. He, he was a father. He was a friend. He was a cousin and he was um, part of the motorcycle community. I mean, he was so many different things and, and I believe he was equally committed to everyone in all those categories. And I know that he worked hard. He wasn't a minimalist. I know that he, you know, regardless of the task, I know he, he worked hard for his employers. Um, if he'd go help somebody move, or I mean, just whatever he did. It's just the fact that he was willing, willing to help so many people. I don't know if I would be able to do that. <laughs> I think there's, I think there's a, uh, when some someone like that uh, is lost, it affects a lot of lives because a lot of people were counting on him and um, he was doing the best he could for everyone and now you know they're going to suffer because he's not around to to help you know pay it forward and and better his community the way it sounds like he was trying to do um yes i'm i just think like just the relationships you know just he just nurtured them so it's just a, a great loss you know that the degree of your grief i i think you know, is kind of related to how important that relationship was to you. So, I mean, he he was such a good kid. Don't get me wrong, he wasn't perfect, but you know, we all put up with each other in in our families. But so yes, but for but the way he died is just so ironic because of these little of these things that I, I've been talking about. Like, wow, how could that happen to him? You that, that was so opposite of him. Yeah. Like, how could you know you, you're always People always say, you know, you know, treat everybody good. It'll all come back to you. And, you know, I, I struggle with this because I thought in his last moments, he was, he was tortured and it was, it was not, and I just can't understand it. Well, let's, let's go back to that day, August 28th, 2022. Can you walk us through that day and what happened to Roll? Well, um, yes. Now, these are just like bits and pieces that I get from other people. Now, the day that I got the call, I only got like through just a small portion of what happened to him. And then we had to like my my other children that were there had to take the phone, the phone for me. And I'm glad that they did because I probably wouldn't have made it if I heard it all. But um, so, yes, based on, you know, what I've heard and um, pretty much from the material witness, he was with somebody that night and she's kind of giving me a lot of information. But he, um, so he did security. So he goes, he was here with me the night before him and his daughter were here. Well, his kids were here. He took, he took the boys home and his daughter stayed with me to spend the night. So he was here and he was, he was going to go in for like four hours and do security from 10 to 2 a.m. Just a couple of hours. So he's here and he tells us, you know, I'm getting ready to go. I'm going to go drop the boys off and um, I'll see you in the morning. So I was like, okay. And he always, always gave me a hug and a kiss. Every, always. And so he did. And I'm glad he did. And um, he told me he loved me and I told him I loved him and walked the kids out. And um, we were planning on seeing him 
that next morning. And so, I don't know, I woke up the next day and my, uh, there's family here, my, my nephew's here and my son, and they're like, trying to hand me the phone. They're like, hey, it's, you know, it's such and such. And Raul was killed last night. And I thought, whatever, like, like really. And so I didn't really understand what was going on at all. So I started to look at my phone to see if I had any missed calls. And I did. And um, I didn't know like what was, I mean, truly, I like literally did not know what was going on. Just, just that quick. I'm not even, I'm completely lost. So my other son is making calls. And so I was like, well, we just need to confirm it. I said, anything could have happened. You know how people talk or, you know, surely he's going to come home. So we called the hospitals and like the jail and stuff. All the hospitals said that he wasn't there. Um, and the hospital that he was at, they weren't being, they said that he wasn't there. So nobody ever notified me, not, not the, uh, not Derby police department, not the coroner and not the hospital that pronounced him. So, um, but my other children were like calling and things like that. So finally, finally we found, we found out that it was in Derby because this is just like crazy. Like, what's he doing in Derby? This, none of this is making sense. You know, he was supposed to be here right now. So we're trying to put all this together. And um, my son finally calls around and then he gets a hold of somebody in Derby. And then um, I call them and then he tells me, yes, this is what has happened. So had my son, I don't know, had my son not made all those phone calls, I don't know if I would have even been notified. And so just going forward, this is where the injustices start, is right there. But um, so we find out that he's he's gone. But um, now as far as the details of what happened that night, that night, he, um, he went to go work. Um, he went into security and he saw a friend there that was working there. And they hadn't seen each other in a while. And so she was like, hey, let's go hang out after, you know, after I get off. And he's like, okay, when we close, we'll go hang out. So I guess as they're leaving, um, there's other, there's like customers there. And Raul didn't like, they weren't like friends, but he knew them. I mean, he has to, he has to search them before they come into the, into the club. So he knew who they were. They, um, they were acquaintances. And as far as I know, there was no, there were no issues at all. We probably wouldn't have any reason to think anything would be um, off or not right. So they leave, and um, as I guess as they're getting ready to leave, the um, the other gentlemen that were there, they told the girl, and they said, you know, hey, why don't you come to my house? And she's like, okay, well, I'm with Raul, and they're like, okay, you know, it's whatever. Just come, you know, you guys can come on over. We're going to go over to my house after we leave here. So for... <laughs> For whatever reason, Raul decides to go. So they go over into uh, Derby is where this person lives. And um, so, I mean, I don't know how detailed you want me to be, but if, I mean, the play-by-play kind of that I, that I gathered. So they arrive and um, some friends come out and meet them. And they say, hey, man, there's a funny vibe in there. I don't know who that guy is, but he's in there just causing all kinds of trouble and it's not comfortable. We should just leave. Let's just go, let's just go party at my house. And so, um, so she was like, well, what do you want to do? And I guess she asked Raul, what do you want to do? And Raul was like, you know, whatever you want to do, I'm fine. If you want to stay, we can stay. If you want to go, we can go. So they decide to go in 
And then um, they walk in and um, it's, so it's my understanding, they, they walked in and as soon as they walked in, the person that, um, I mean, do you, do you want me to use his name or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's public knowledge, right? Okay, yes. So the, um, so the young man, his name was Mark, and he was there with his girlfriend. So I guess they walk in, and he's in there, like, they're having some kind of an altercation. Like, they're, they're like, physically having some issues in there. I don't, I don't know if he was, like, like I, I heard that he was, like, kind of choking her. So they're having some kind of a, a domestic violence situation in there. And um, so they walk in. He's in there um, fighting with his girlfriend, and Raul says, hey, can I use the restroom? Evan Amos is the homeowner, and he's the one that had invited them over, and DeMarc is with Evan. So um, Evan's like, yeah, there's the restroom. So Raul goes into the restroom, uses the restroom, and while he's in there, um, the, the, the young lady he's with, her name's Jane, she, um, she, goes into the, she goes into the bedroom with Evan, and she's like, hey, what's going on with this guy? I mean, he's like in here fighting everybody. Why don't, why don't you just make him leave? And... Um, he said that um, he just kind of was like, no, he just kind of blew it off. So Raul comes down. She's like, hey, Raul, I'm in here. That young couple that met them out at the car and said, hey, I got a funny feeling. They walk into the bedroom now. And, um, and, he, and they proceed to say, Evan, you know, why don't you kick this guy out? He's, I, don't, I don't like this feeling. Like, I have a weird feeling. And um, at that point, DeMarc walks in with his girlfriend Latonia, and I mean, it's my understanding that he was like, "Oh, you calling me weird? You calling me a weirdo?" And then he just like starts like attacking him, this um, the, the the kid, and um, some unknown male, and so he's so he's fighting with him or he's attacking him, and nobody's doing anything because everybody's kind of in shock. And then finally, um, I think Jane kind of gets upset and looks at Raul. And so Raul, I think, felt like, okay, it's okay, calm down. I'll, I'll break it up. So she, you know, she said that he started to just um, fall limp and he just wasn't able to defend himself. And he was in, in a bad position and DeMarc wasn't stopping. So um, she said that Raul was like, it's okay, you know, I'll, I'll break it up. And so he went, he went up to him and she said he kind of just tried to subdue him. I mean, I just kind of bear hug. I'm like, hey, you know, it's okay. Just back off, cool down or whatever. And that's not what happened. Um, Raul tried to subdue him and then he continued to strike the kid. Um, even after he was like, um, she said he, it looked like he was almost like passed out. So he's not able to defend himself and he's continuing to strike him even after Raul tried to subdue him. And then I guess, he um he turns his rage onto Raul, and um and so they start fighting, and then his girlfriend jumps in, so they're both like um striking Raul, and then I guess he started choking him, he started choking Raul, and um they're still hitting him, and then he it's my understanding that he started he got he pulled his gun out and started to like like pistol whip him like hit him with with his gun, and um. And then that's when Raul, he was, he was a responsible firearms owner. So he had his firearm with him. And it's my understanding that at that point, he, um, he drew his weapon, but um, they said that he was, they said that Raul was like on his, like on his knees, kind of like trenched down and he wasn't able to like 
really move. And so he's getting choked and hit with the, with the butt of a gun and this other girl's hitting him. So he pulls out his gun and just kind of starts sh- shooting it, it like all in the room. And then that's when I guess DeMarc um, starts firing his shots. So I don't know how exactly this, this is happening because he's, you know, he's like down, he's being choked, you know, kind of like head down somehow, but yet he's shot twice in the chest. So he gets shot twice in the chest and then once on in the hip and once on the thigh. So, um, and then after that, it's my understanding that things happened really fast after that. They were um, directed not to call, not to activate EMS. Or to them, it was 911. It was the police. And then uh, Evan, the homeowner. So I guess it's really chaotic. There's a hail of gunfire at this point. So DeMarc shooting um, after Raul was shooting. And then everybody kind of takes cover really fast. And then when things might calm down, um, Jane said that she she was in a closet. And then she came out and she saw Raul there. And um, she, she ran over to him and she started to uh, apply pressure. And she said that he was trying to dial 911. She could see 911 on his phone, but he hadn't hit send. And um, so she was trying to stop the bleed and she's calling, you know, calling for help, like, call 911, please. And then I think she said that she called 911, but, um, but I'm not certain because I, I never, I didn't get those recordings. But um, so she says that she did activate EMS and she's trying to apply pressure. And then Evan Amos comes up and, and like pushes her off completely. And he's like, you know, get off of him. And she's like, no. And then um, I guess Raul still had his gun in his hand and he was, and he wouldn't let it go. He was, I'm sure, very distrusting. And so Evan gets him to let go of his gun and um, he drops it and then he grabs him he's like by the bed. It's a really small area. So he tries to move him out. And then he was shot in the hip and the thigh. And that is kind of like what holds the joint, the hip joint in place. So I think he tried to move him. And that's when they both said that his leg became um, like detached, but he didn't stop. He took his hands and he um, started to drag him out of the house because um, he didn't want the police to come in for whatever reason, and um, he didn't want him to bleed on the floor. So he starts to drag him out, and his hip, where he was shot, I guess his leg became, um, like, severed, hmm. and it was, like, dragging opposite opposite of him. And so, um, you know, she's telling him, Please, you know, stop. First of all, he's bleeding. We need to, like, not move him. We need to apply pressure. We need to call 911. But um, she said that his leg, as he continued to drag him, his leg was becoming further and further um, dismembered. And by the time he got out, he dragged him outside um, off off the porch and onto, like, the concrete right there. So he throws him out of the house. He's bleeding. He shot four times. And um, he's bleeding from the chest. And we don't have any idea what the injuries are going to be internally. So, I mean, I would think that you would never move a body like that. And, and then what's to me, what's even worse is once you see that leg move and you see it go the opposite direction, you can tell that it's not, you know, intact with the body anymore. I would think anybody would stop, but he didn't. He continued to um, drag him out. And um, I think she said that he, you know, he was just like screaming in pain, but she said that she doesn't think 
that he knew what was happening with his leg. I think he was focusing on the, and I'm glad. I I hope that he didn't see his leg, you know, going the opposite direction and completely detached from the body. And so by the time he got him outside, his entire um, lower limb was completely like turned around. And so to me, that's, that just, that's been like the worst part. And so after that, um, so Evan Amo takes him outside and drops him out there. She's trying to, uh, and at that point he's dying. He's telling her I'm dying. He's, he's talking to Jane here at the very end. And, um, he's, you know, he's telling her, you know, I'm getting ready to die. And then in the meantime, Evan and, and DeMarc and Latonia are inside the house, cleaning up the crime scene, getting, getting their gun and, um, and doing whatever they think that they're going to do to uh, cover up this crime. And then they walk out of the house and they have to exit the home through the front door and they have to walk right over on top of Raul's body. I don't know if he was dead yet or not, but I mean, they walk on top of him and flee the scene. And then it was like, so it was like the worst situation ever. So I guess officers arrive and uh, Jane saying that you know she's she's calling for help and the officer's not helping her, and um, he's not even approaching, and um, and then then everybody's all the agencies started to show up, you know, different departments, you know, are, the Wichita PD, the sheriff, all the um, local law enforcement agencies, but they weren't able to um, approach the scene because they had to secure it and. They said that there was an active shooter still that they heard um, shots being fired. So all this is happening and like Raul, nobody's getting him help because they can't secure the scene. And so nobody's able to get to him yet. And then I guess the EMS arrives, but they can't, they can't approach him until the scene is secure. So that was another delay. I just feel like there was delay after delay. And then, um, Finally, you know, EMS was able to to approach him after the after the scene was secured, but by then he had already um, he had already died. And I I was trying to figure out you know how many minutes he went without you know CPR, but um, I think it was quite a bit. It was about eight or nine minutes that he had died, but you know, and there was no um, CPR wasn't initiated, so there was no circulation. Of course, I'm sure he was losing a lot of blood anyway. And so they started um, CPR on him, but if he was already gone that long, nothing was happening. And, you know, based on the radio traffic, he was code blue from the moment they arrived clear until he got to the um, hospital, which was Wesley Medical Center here in in Wichita. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just because of all the delays and, and, you know, the movement, there were so many different things. I don't know. I don't know what his survival rate would have been, but, um, everything that could go wrong did. I mean, every delay possible. I mean, all these horrible things about, you know, dragging him and his, you know, his limb becoming, you know, severed and you still continue, you know, walking over his body to exit the scene, you know, pulling, pulling somebody off who's trying to apply pressure. I mean, just to me, they're just so troubling and so tragic. But, um, Very ugly. So, yeah. Uh, it, chaotic scene and um meanwhile trying to escape and cover stuff up and clean stuff up and, and meanwhile your son's they're dying
Uh, now, this guy that, that was the shooter, um, it didn't take long for police to arrest him. He was arrested, what, a, a couple days later? Yes, that's right. And yes. uh, he was well, charged. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry. Um, so Raul did manage, when he when he did start firing his gun, He um, and I don't believe that Raul would have drew his weapon unless he knew he was in trouble, truly. So I feel like he was acting in self-defense, but he did he did have a, a small flesh wound onto the right neck. So he caught, he caught DeMarc um, on his neck, but um, it was, I don't want to say it was like superficial, but it, it was non, non-lethal and non-fatal. So what happened was he had that wound. And so when he was on the run for, like you said, approximately like 48 hours, it became infected and he was starting to become septic. And so he needed to get medical care. And that was when, um, I think an attorney got involved and that was how he was, that's how he ultimately was arrested because of that wound mm. becoming so infected. Oh, so you're left with this aftermath of this terrible ordeal that happened just because of a, you know, bumping into this guy and a unfortunate run-in with him. Um, how did you react after you got that news? I know you told me earlier about, you know, how quickly you got it and whether it came fast enough. But once it set in that your son was gone, I mean, how do you start to process that and and deal with it? Um, well, yeah, it didn't, it didn't set in. I mean, I, it was, um, I was in a complete, I was completely, you know, like a nuclear bomb, that light did it tell you not to look at. I was completely blinded by the light. Like literally I couldn't, um, you know, all this happens and you need to go plan the funeral. I could not do anything. I couldn't write his obituary. I couldn't make any decisions. I, I, you know, I could not do literally anything it was um it was i mean it was it was a shock because you know remember i lost another son a year four you know 14 months earlier and it it was a different type of a grief it was completely different i mean with this situation i just i mean i was i was in i was in disbelief and then when i found out that you know he dragged him like that and that you know that they knew him that was so troubling. I mean, that was so painful. It was like my heart got ripped out. And so, I mean, it took so long for me. Like I'm just now starting, like, you know, like I said, I'm just now starting to like read and write. And, but all I, it was so painful. That, that was just all it was. I couldn't do anything, but it's hurt. It just, and just, I just cried. And, um, and I just, I, mean, I, I literally, I wasn't even, I didn't even start to process it until maybe weeks later. So then you, you start to process it. But I mean, um, it, that didn't happen immediately. I was, I was just like, I was, I was, I think I was just in shock. I was, I completely just didn't know what to do. And I mean, I was hurting for him, but I couldn't do anything. I couldn't make any decisions. I, I couldn't do anything. I, I, I don't even know how, I mean, like I said, my entire grief process and, and, and the entire situation was completely different compared to my other son. And so it took me, it took me a long time. It, I truly, I had no will to live. Really, I didn't. I mean, I did not care. 
and I didn't care if, you know, if we didn't have lights, I didn't care if we didn't have food, nothing mattered. I could, I didn't even have the, I didn't have the strength. I couldn't do anything. So, um, it took a while to process it. And I'm just now, I'm just now starting to do better, but you know, it, I had to go to grief classes. Um, I had to see my doctor. I didn't work at all. I went back to work for the first time this week. And um, so, yeah, I had my first shift, but I mean, I wasn't able to do anything, but, and it took so much, you know, I, I had to go to the support groups and, um, and that was all I would do. And then I would come back and fall asleep. But um, yeah, it took, I don't know. It just took so long to, like you said, first you have to process it. And then you have to start, you know, going through the phases, you know, the anger, the, I mean, then you have your, your arguments with God, you like, you need him, like you're turning to God, but at the same time, it's like, wait, I don't know if I trust you. I mean, there's so much going on and, and then you're just searching for answers. And so, I mean, it is, it is a whirlwind I and mean, so much is going on. There's <laughs> no rhyme or reason. And now you have the, uh, the prospect of having to face a, a trial, um, what are you are you looking forward to getting justice for Raul or are you maybe dreading that going into court you're gonna to have to hear all this stuff again and, and it's gonna open up old wounds? Well I don't know if it sounds weird. I definitely will be present, but I def I know that I cannot sit through that trial. I mean I can't even look at his death certificate. Like I can't I still there's so much I can't even look like at his clothes and stuff. I, it's, I know it sounds silly, but truly I can't. So no, I, there's no way I will sit through that trial. Um, but I'll be there. I just, you know, as far as justice goes, you know, it's really scary for me because, you know, to me, so Evan Amos moved his body. He, he, um, he interfered with um, life-saving measures. I mean, so she had already tried to, apply pressure, all these little things really could have changed his outcome. And um, so I believe Evan Amos is, has a, a huge responsibility um, as far as moving the body. <clears throat> and uh, as far as him severing his limb, had he have never touched him, that leg would have never came off. Now, how do we know that the bullet didn't get dislodged or that he didn't get a femoral bleed? Whatever it is, had he... Had he not touched Raul, the outcome would have been different, but he did. So when we get to the prosecutor's office for that initial meeting, um, the first thing he says is that um, nothing that Evan Amos did was criminal. It's not illegal. It's not wrong. and It is not illegal to move a body that's been shot, you know, a dying victim's body. That's not wrong. And it's not illegal and it's not criminal. So he won't be charged. So, but in response, I was like, no, that's great bodily harm. I mean, I can find all kinds of statutes. You, and he said, well, there's no duty to render care. Well, you don't have to render care, but you certainly can't cause harm. So, I mean, as far as like seeking justice, th these are my allegations of injustice is that, wait, you're going to let him hold on. So he did nothing, no nothing at all. I mean, he didn't get charged with anything. And, um, and so I said, okay, fine. So what about the girl, Latonia? I mean, she struck him. Isn't that ag battery? No. 
um, she's not going to be charged with anything either. So we have three people involved in this case. I'm not so much worried about Latonia. I'm, I'm really focused on Evan Amos because truly he killed him and he tortured him. That, that was completely, I mean, and he was bleeding out from his chest. Why would you move a body that was bleeding out and then turn around and say that that wasn't wrong? That was absolutely wrong. And, and severing a limb, you know, and then, you know, he's, he's screaming in pain and you don't stop. And you're telling me none of this is illegal. You can't do, I don't think you, you can't do that to people. You can't do it to anyone. Um, but in this case, our, our district attorney says, you know, it's okay. We're not going to charge um, Latonia for, you know, um, taking the weapon. The weapon's never been recovered, you know, for desecrating his body, stomping all over him, for striking him, ag battery, for being DeMarc's accomplice, for harboring him. None of that. There's no charges for any of that. Um, nobody's being held accountable for that. None of that is illegal and wrong. So they continue to roam around in our community. Evan Amos, what he did was not wrong. He won't be charged. And DeMarc. So we have two out of three that aren't going to be charged. We have a third person here. And his, what he's getting ready to do is he's going for self-defense and he's requesting immunity um, based on self-defense. So he's just going to go before a judge. And if he, if the judge, and I, I believe they only have to have like 51%, you have to just prove um, just like 51% beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, that he was acting in self-defense and he's acquitted. He'll go home. So that's my worst fear is like, okay, if he, I mean, I don't know. I don't see how he could ever get off on self-defense, but that is, they're very confident. Jamar and his counsel are very confident this is going to work. And we're going back to court on March 31st and he's going to go before a judge and he's going to, um, decide if, if he's if he's able to um, be granted immunity i uh, mean and be protected by the law so if he says yes then he goes home if not then we go to trial but he's still going to be using the um the uh, self-defense defense oh that's a scary prospect that he could go free altogether oh that'd be that'd be the yeah the worst thing that could happen because that mm -hmm. means all three, three of three will yeah. go free. And hmm. yeah. That's and awful. after all, everything that happened. Oh, so, you know, obviously I can hear it in your voice and everything you've been through that you're, this has devastated you. But then we also talked about Raul has th three young children too, that are going to not have a father now. Mm -hmm. How are they doing? Yeah. How are they coping? Are they missing him? Yes. Now, the the baby is four months. He was four months old when Raul passed away. So he's, you know, he will never know his father. The three-year-old, um, yes, I don't really know how like three-year-olds grieve, but he, um, they've all, they've all, all three or all three of the kids have been, um, they've, they've been so good to me. They're his, the mothers of their children have been really good to me. They come over and clean and they look after me and take care of me. And they make sure that his kids, you know, are, are with me, but the three-year-old and um, so, yes, you know, like when he, we would be at the funeral and doing um, visitation and stuff, he would, you know, wonder what was happening. You know, when's he coming home? Why is he asleep? But, uh, and then his oldest daughter, she's 12. 
And um, she was taking it hard because remember, she just saw him before he left and he was supposed to come right back in the morning. And she has been, so his children are super involved. Um, if we go to any type of events, you know, for, um, for persons that have been murdered or of homicide, you know, his, his little one is there wearing his shirt, you know, that he's representing his father. And um, he makes it, you know, like at Christmas time, we made gingerbread houses and he made like his truck. And I mean, so the, um, the three-year-old, he's, he's going to be okay. Um, and he's still, you know, he still remembers his father and, and we keep, you know, we keep Raul alive very much around here. I mean, he's, he, I mean, he just is, he, he's here. We talk about him all the time. We exchange videos. I mean, we see him all the time and I mean, we're completely devastated, but he's definitely not a day goes by that we're not, you know, saying something or doing something or they have like this cardboard cut out and they take a, they take him everywhere they go, like to birthday parties and stuff. So, and then his oldest daughter, she's really been amazing. I don't know how she's dealing with her grief. I know she is in, I know she is in therapy and those two, you know, we're having a lot of fun. She's such a smart little girl. And, um, you know, Raul never wanted his kids, you know, on devices and things like that. He always wanted them to read and play outside. So he was always very hands-on with them. And um, she was like in all these little book clubs and everything. And they had so much fun. But she has been, she has been super. As far as, I don't know if that's how she's dealing with the grief, but she has, you know, she wrote like all the thank you cards and, she'll like makes you know she made all these little adjustments for Raul and like glass jars that she would put like a, like a little knickknack and she has done so much she like hangs these flyers because we have these justice for Raul flyers that you can just like scan it and it'll take you straight to his um his Facebook page and so she like hangs those up and I mean she she has just been amazing so I mean his children are super involved and I don't know if that's how they're dealing with their grief, but they definitely um, support their father. And they're just, they're doing everything they can. You know, even the little one, he probably doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he always has his little shirt on and he's right there too, hanging. But whatever we do, we do like as a unit, as a family and his children are always involved. But his daughter, she's, um, she just takes the lead. And, you know, she's like, I'm going to design this headstone and, so her and her brother did that and you know she she takes you know she's like okay we're going to do thank you cards this is what they're going to look like this is what they're going to be this is the quote i'm going to use and she her quote that she wanted inserted you know with anything that we any anything that had to do with bro like a thank you card or um whatever she had made for them the one she chose was um wrong is wrong even if everybody's doing it and right is right, even if no one's doing it. So that that's what she chose for, for her father. And that's the quote that she uses and that she inserts and, in, you know, in anything that she makes. So it's good to see that they're, you know, remembering him and honoring him and, um, you know, helping in, in okay. efforts to talk about him. And speaking of that, you mentioned uh, he's got a Facebook page. What is Roll's uh, Facebook page for people that want to check it out? Certainly. It's Justice for Raul 2022. Okay. And mm -hmm. hopefully people will, will check that out. And as we wrap up, I just want to mm -hmm. ask you a, a question. When people think of your son or talk about him or just, you know, 
remember him. What do you want them to think of? What do you want his legacy to be? Just that, I mean, so many things, but, you know, he would stand up and he would advocate for others. So I want him really to be remembered, you know, for the fact that he stood up for what he believed in, even if he had to stand alone. And, and he spoke out when things weren't right. You know, he, he decided what his values were and he wasn't afraid and, and he wasn't afraid to speak out. And so I definitely, I mean, he definitely was, he was a good father. He was so many things, but he stuck to his values. And I mean, even with his children, you know, no devices, reading books, um, teaching them who God was. I mean, all of that was, were his values. And he was, he was so, um, I mean, he just had such conviction for, for what he believed in. And, and so I definitely want him to, I know he would want to be remembered for that, you know, and he was good. He was forgiving. He kept her secrets. He didn't gossip. He, um, and, you know, and he stood up for others. And so like now my, my biggest thing is right now when I feel like, the district attorney is, is not charging people. And I feel like everybody's going to get away with this entire case. You know, I just ask that everybody do what Raul would have done for them or what he did. He stood up for others. He spoke out when things weren't wrong. I mean, when things were wrong and when things weren't right, you know, he would say something. And even if he got ridiculed or laughed at or, oh, you're, you know, this or that, he had courage and he did, he did what he believed was right. And so, I, you know, and I always have like on his Facebook, there's this, there's a sign because he actually held these signs when there was all the, um, the protests and things like that with the George, George Floyd situation. And, um, and I always say, you know, he held these very signs for him. He spoke out for someone else when you hold the sign for him, because we do have to speak out. We do have to say something. There's some terrible things going on. And we can't look the other way because Raul's not an isolated incident. He's not an outlier. This is happening to a lot of people. I just happen to be the one that's, um, yeah, that's speaking out. But, you know, I got that from him. I know that's what he would do, and I'm going to do it for him. Well, I, I'm sure he'd be proud, and he has a good advocate in you and uh, honoring his memory. And I can't thank you enough, Dre, for coming on to discuss Raul's uh, case and i hope that your family gets justice and the person that did this is held accountable and doesn't slip away through through the cracks thank you thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family i'd like to thank sunny landon for writing and research assistance in this episode we'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of the murder of my family and i hope you'll join me for it but before you go remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.